Now, here's where we're going. It's up on the screen. God is using evil and suffering to destroy evil and suffering in order to create a people who can delight in him forever. Now, I don't expect that makes sense at first. I hope it makes sense by 9 o'clock. But at the heart of this claim is reality that I think you can understand right now. And it is the big takeaway for tonight. It is this. Coercive power, the bigger hammer, is not the tool that does or can destroy evil in God's economy, given God's goals and God's character. That's what we're going to be looking at. God has a bigger hammer. God has power over all things. For him to accomplish his goals, coercive power will not work. To understand what I mean, I want to make a deep connection between Noah and the flood, and Jesus on the cross. And let me tell you the story of Noah. Catch up to speed. Been a while since Sunday school. A couple of days. You know about the first creation, and you know about Adam. And you know that Adam lived in a perfect place. No pain, no evil. But he failed. He sold God out for a piece of fruit and a meal with the devil along with his wife. He broke God's world. And at the end of that breaking, we've got to be saying, surely God can fix this. We expect something big, something powerful, but it doesn't happen. There's a promise that's given. A baby, a seed, will come, and he will do something. It's not quite clear. The serpent, who's already been a problem, in regard to that serpent, his foot will be bitten. But he will do something. We find out that something in the New Testament, it's crush. He will crush the head of the serpent. What does that mean? And it doesn't sound all that impressive yet. So we come to Noah. Noah is the redo. Now, you got to like Noah, and you got to like the story, if you're like me, because you like the idea that God's going to do something with coercive power. And here he comes. Adam had turned all evil loose in the world until God got to the point that he said, after many generations and something like a thousand years, if we add up the years and the genealogies, if that's what Moses intended us to do, But many years go by, and God now says this, I will not put up with the people I created anymore for 120 years, and they will be gone. I'm going to wipe the earth. Really? He raises up Noah, the one righteous man, the new Adam. And he says, Noah, you're my guy. Build an ark. There's going to be a flood. And for some 100 years, Noah's an ark builder and a preacher. He builds the ark in his backyard and preaches 
on weekends and maybe on holidays. And he preaches about the righteousness of God to a world who does not care. So little did they care that he couldn't even offer him free passage on the ark to any effect. Repent and believe. Be saved from God's wrath. They wouldn't. And God brought the flood. And God saved Noah, the righteous man, his family, eight in all, and all the critters that God fit onto the ark. This was God's creation redo. This was God's bigger hammer. Now the world would be right. Because all of us want to redo. Like, okay, that didn't work. Mulligan, tee it up again. Wouldn't that work? I mean, it was just an accident. We weren't smart enough. We ate the fruit. Give us another chance, God. Give me another chance, God. Great power. All the evil of the world washed away. And Noah comes out, does real good, offers God a sacrifice of the clean animals, plants a vineyard, that's a good thing, gets drunk. Gets falling down naked drunk. Goes into his tent. Something happens. We don't know what. His son, maybe his grandson with him, apparently did something pretty sexually sketchy. The words are that they uncovered or looked on their father's nakedness. That's used later in Leviticus to mean sexual sin. What did they do? It doesn't say. Bad. What we are supposed to see is this. The redo didn't work. Not only did the redo not work, but God's bigger hammer, his coercive power, did not accomplish what God wanted. God wants you. got to do. If the bigger hammer doesn't work to solve the problem of evil, what's next? This anticipates Jesus, and I think most of you are ahead of me, but let's hold off on that for a minute. I want to look back at the problem. Remember the problem? God is all good, and God is all powerful, but there is evil in the world, and I keep running into that, and that feels so real. The theological term for what we're talking about is developing a theodicy, and that is a defense for God. How how can we say that this good and all-powerful God, who has coercive power, seems like he could do anything he wants, that he's in the world, and evil is too, how can it be? The first answer to theodicy for almost everybody is to defect from the problem. Here's what I mean. If those are the three, three issues that we have to hold together and say, yeah, that's a problem, that first one, that, that God is good, maybe we could do away with that. Maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. Uh, you have seen this. Uh, this is the kind of religion that the Romans and the Greeks had. Remember, they had very powerful gods, but they were anything but good. They did what they wanted. They had big egos, big appetites, and they were the gods, and they lived up in the mountains, and they were dangerous and unhelpful, but they were powerful, if you could get them on your side, but not good. 
That is one of our ways of solving the problem of evil. We change, we defect from one of these three statements. That's an option. And there are many other religious approaches to it that in some way make God not good. Another way is to do away with his power, to attenuate God's power. God is not really sovereign or not as sovereign as he thinks. Um, there's something called process theology and uh, more recently called open theism, which says uh, God just isn't as in control as he would like to be or seems to think he is. Um, there's a rabbi who wrote a book back in the 20th century. His name was Rabbi Harold Kushner. The book was When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's still in print. He basically says this, he would if he could, but he can't. He tries to comfort people by God's in your side. He is really good. He's compassionate. Uh, but he can't do much to help you. Then there's the idea that even is, evil isn't as bad as we think. We could call it ephemeral evil. It doesn't really exist. This is uh, every form of Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age. In all those cases, one of the things you've got to learn if you're going through that approach to the world is that your idea that evil is evil is wrong. And you've got to get that out of your head and by knowledge, uh, various ways to appropriate that knowledge, depending which group you're with, um, you can avoid that. And you end up understanding that the world is in perfect balance. That actually doesn't work. Because if there's one thing we all actually do know, is the evilness of evil. Mary Baker Eddy, though, with uh, science and health, Christian scientism, seems to have a lot of followers, does the same thing in a different way. But that's a cheat. It's a cheat on the reality that we know is true. There's another way to cheat this. Not that evil is ephemeral, that we're imagining it. It's not really there. Another way is to say evil is fading, and evil will fade on its own. There's a guy named John Hick. Um, he did this, again, uh, coming out of uh, World War I and World War II that he fought in, uh, deciding that he had to abandon this idea that there was a necessary cross, that the things Jesus did weren't necessary, that evil is going to fade in its own. All of these attempts, whatever you think of them, I want to classify as defecting from the problem. Uh, perhaps you might argue that I'm overlooking them too quickly, but allow me this. I want to deal with the toughest form of the problem. I want to say all these things are, are there and real and substantive, and that I think that we should find an answer to that problem. Not change the problem, but ask if God in his actual world and his real communication in the word can give us an honest answer without changing the problem. He can. He does. And so keeping the problem at its full weight, we're going to say God is good, God is powerful, and yes, evil does exist. I want to also remind you of something. I, I think you may know it. But do you realize this is only a problem for Christians? Once you throw out one of those three, or all of them, once you throw out the God of the Bible, 
You have to face the problem that pain is painful or evil is painful, either way. But you really don't have a problem of evil. The world is as you find it. Uh, you don't have a tension with it. You just don't like some things about it. That's not really the problem of evil. The problem of evil is who is God in the world that I face? And so I want to remind you that evil is a problem first, and if you will, only for Christians. But can I say it's not even really a problem for us? Here's what I mean by this. It's God's problem. If you believe in the God of the Bible, and if you don't, just go with me to hear how difficult this is for us as Christians to say, well, this is a, a bigger God than most people understand. It's a problem for the God of the Bible because in the eternity in which he said, I will create the world, he also said, I will die because the world I create will be perfect. But the people I make in my image are going to reject me and they will create evil and they won't be able to fix it in the moment there's no moment in eternity in the moment he says i will create he says i will redeem and so we get that haunting verse in revelation that says the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world that's our god who alone is really the one who faces the problem of evil in its sheer, raw awfulness. But we still have to come to terms with it. I was hoping to talk about Job, and eh, maybe in the Q&A we'll get to that. I'm going to let that go for tonight, and, or at least for now. And I want to look at how we might approach this problem. Um, Here's the proposal. God is using evil and suffering to destroy evil and suffering. Now, that's not the end of it because we have to add what's his goal. And we'll look at that in the first slide and what that means, but for his people or to create a people. And we will suffer as we trust him. Well, let's look at that, see if we make sense. I want you to see first that this answer is going to come in the context of a full biblical picture, story. In other words, to understand this, you have to be willing to inhabit the story that God told in his Bible. Uh, my background is physics. Uh, my wife, Dr. Shank, uh, the other Dr. Shank, uh, she's in chemistry. We met in physics class on day one of college. I mean, where else would you want to meet your wife anyway? And so both of us have a deep love and interest in God's other revelation. By the way, bad news, if you do decide to go to heaven, you're going to be doing chemistry and physics along with us because that's going to be one of the ways we worship God is to look at his world and say, that's how he did it. We'll also do art and music and dance and even biology, though it's not my favorite. To understand physics and chemistry, you have to inhabit that world. You, know, you can't just step in the outside and throw stones at it because you don't like it. You've got to take a breath and pause for a minute and understand what's going on inside this world God made. Otherwise, it just looks like magic to you. And you can take it or leave it or make fun of it. The same is true for God. 
So just as physics is sometimes standoffish and we're a little bit afraid to put our head in that and, and look at it from the inside, you really can't understand the world God made unless you do that. And you can't understand the Bible unless you really get in and inhabit the story, not just hear piecemeal this and that and the other thing. So this slide is a help, I hope, to help you inhabit that story. And the story is told this way in God's Word, that there's three creations. I keep doing the three creations. The first one, this one at the top, the creation of heaven and earth, you know about that. But each of these creations comes with a crisis. That's kind of interesting that each of them do. So as soon as we get the creation of new heavens and new earth, you remember, we get the fall, the eating of the fruit, the rejection of God, the meal with the devil instead of a meal with God. And the whole of creation, Romans 8, is undermined, brought to futility by God because of that failure of his people. What's going to happen next? There's a second creation. That second creation has two creation hinges and one crisis. The creation hinges are the incarnation of Christ and his resurrection. And right in the middle is that crisis in the second creation. And that crisis is the death of Christ. In fact, that's the absolute hinge point of the whole of the Bible. Everything leads up to that, and then everything tails away from that to the final climax. And here we go with the third creation. It begins with a crisis. That crisis is a judgment. Notice that's parallel to the fall of humanity. And God's judgment of the world, you and I will all stand before him. And the question will be, what have you done with Jesus? And then, if what you've done with Jesus is to surrender to him, we will have that last meal in history, where instead of a meal with the devil, it will be a meal with God called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then we're ushered into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the story that... Any answer to the problem of evil has to inhabit. Every story that you read in the Bible is somewhere on that line. Because God's moving. He's doing something through these three creations. So let's see what he's doing. You see at the bottom, I kind of flipped this, so it's kind of on its side now. The first creation, second, third. But I want you to see this big picture of what God is doing. That's his yellow band. God's goal in creation. Now, all of you should know or do know that God has a goal in everything he does, which is to glorify himself. Now, God isn't full of himself in some silly way. If God is the greatest in the universe, then it would be idolatry for God not to delight in himself. It's pretty much simple. The point isn't that glorying in something is wrong. It's glorying in the wrong thing is wrong. And so, Primarily, God delights in himself. He has in all eternity. He did before he created Nick. You know, it has nothing to do with us. That's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But when God creates and redeems, he does have a secondary goal. And this is it. To glorify himself by. He's going to do something. Creating a people not just creating a people, he creates them in his image. And he doesn't even stop there. That would have been stopping back in the garden. Hey, I made Adam and Eve, done. No, he knew he was far from done. That was the first of three creations. He's going to create a people who can delight in him forever. 
Adam is not a candidate for that. When he creates people, we have what's called volitional freedom. That just means you're going to make choices all of your life. And that never changes. It never changes in your life. And it never changes throughout history. God grants that. It's what makes you different than rocks and squirrels. Isn't that a relief? Rocks obey gravity. They don't ask any questions about gravity. They just obey gravity. Squirrels, squirrels are a little bit different. They not only have being, but they have being and life. And when squirrels run around and bury nuts, they actually make what we might call a decision. They bury it here and not there. They bury it today and not tomorrow, or seven today and 200 tomorrow. But almost no squirrel has written a book on why I bury nuts. And very few dogs have written philosophical treatises on why I bark. You see, the difference is not merely that intuitive making a choice between A and B, but for people, God has made us in his image. And one, one of those pieces that make us like him is that like God, we will things. What does it mean to have volitional freedom? It means your will is in agreement with your desires. You may have gone back and forth and rather to come tonight. You may even wish now you hadn't. But you're staying in your seat, at least out of embarrassment. But it is dark. You could probably get out. Not too many people would see. But if you're sitting here, you're here volitionally. You've made that choice. If you're kidnapped, that's not volitional free will. You have this kind of free will whenever. But when Adam came into the world, he had something else, something that you and I don't have just now. He had this unfettered freedom. He was free from conformity to God. A little kid buys a helium balloon, puts it on his wrist, ties it with a, mom ties it with a string, of course. It follows him wherever he goes. But you know what happens. That string breaks. It's going to go where it wants. It's not necessarily going to go with the little girl or little boy. God made Adam and Eve absolutely perfect. There was no defect in them, but they weren't required to conform to God. He gave them volitional freedom. And God in himself has this fountain of goodness and perfection and rightness. Adam and Eve were like God, but they weren't God. So they were free not to be in agreement with this fountain. And, well, you know what happened. That first crisis, when they turned away from God. And as a result, they have slavery to sin. Romans 8 says, or Romans 8. Romans 8 says they are not able to please God. They, they cannot. Now, that doesn't mean we've lost volitional freedom. Remember Pharaoh. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that isn't all it says. In the same chapter, once, when it says God hardened his heart, which it says several times, but in one chapter, in the, just a few verses away, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How can that be? Imagine yourself as a reporter. You go up to Pharaoh. 
You take the microphone, you stick it under Pharaoh's nose and say, Pharaoh, I understand God forced you not to let the people go. And after he cuts off your head for such slander, he announces to everybody, I am the one who decided not to let them go. Right? You know, Pharaoh made his own decision as far as Pharaoh is concerned. But God's saying, no, I turned you over. You did exactly what I intended. How can that be? How can both be true? That's one of the things the Bible says. We never lose our volitional freedom. But after Adam, we are all slaves to sin. But then something else happened in God's economy. God gave us a penultimate freedom. And that came through the cross. Jesus came in that second creation. He was incarnated. And then this crisis, he was put to death. God is put to death. We could be pulling that apart all evening and just trying to make sense out of that. It's still true. To wrap our head around it, well, we'll be doing that for all of eternity. We'll get closer and closer, but we'll never fully understand. But we'll understand more. And there are some true things to be said about that. But it's at least this. That when God became a man, he was actually able to be tempted and actually able to die. And he did both. But he came through. What I mean by that is when he died, he had never sinned. He became the perfect sacrifice. And in doing that and his resurrection from the dead, he gave us his penultimate freedom. You and I are now free to please God. In some ways, it's better than Adam. In some ways, it's worse. But this fundamental failure, this slavery to sin, is now changed. What makes it better than Adam is God promises when you're in Christ, he's going to finish the job. What makes it the same as Adam is, yeah, we can still sin. And we wait for the third creation. Here's the amazing thing about the third creation. When Jesus comes back and the judgment and then brings us into heaven, you and I are not like Adam and Eve. And, and that is a deep mystery. I like to say that Adam was like a loose cannon. Um, if you like history, you might know what that is. If you don't, let me briefly describe it. Cannons in the old days on the second decks of ships, the gun deck under the top were tied down with big, heavy ropes. And if when they weren't paying attention, somehow that rope got old, frayed, burnt, cut, when they set off that cannon and it recoiled, it would go slamming around the deck and kill the very people who were using it. Loose cannon on the deck. That's who Adam was in the Garden of Eden. That's who you and I would, would be if we were taken to heaven without this amazing work of Christ. Adam wasn't ready. You and I, if we surrender to Christ, get to actually be brought into heaven safe. Ultimate freedom. Romans 8 talks about it this way. By the way, if you have any theological questions, read Romans 8. I mean, it's all in there. Quite seriously, if you are looking for something to memorize, memorize that chapter. Romans 8 says, The creation waits to come into the freedom of the children of God. And then at the end of Romans 8, in verse 28, 29, it says that we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Freely? Conforming? Do those go together? God says they do. 
That is what God is doing for you by this cross. But it is, it is so counterintuitive. Because we're still stuck back at the flood. We're still stuck back at the idea that God's greater power could do something and just kind of clean this up. He could, but he wouldn't get Rick because Rick's a problem. Noah's a problem. Adam's a problem. Peter, Paul, and Mary, both the guys in the Bible and the guys who sing, I'm old, are not ready to be in God's presence. How? That's the problem of evil. And when you and I are hurting, when your neighbor's hurting, when you're confused because you're asked to come and hold Gusty as he dies, and I got to. Say, God, where are you? And he says, I am calling you to endure evil and suffering and trust me. In fact, that's what the book of 1 Peter says. In this we have an example, Jesus Christ, who suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, do you think that following in his steps, your job will be to redeem the world? No, that's not what the Bible says. What about when Paul says, I fill up in my own body, Colossians chapter 1, verse, I think, 26, I fill up in my own body that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions. What do you mean? I fill up in my body that was lacking? I mean, to use the word lacking of Christ's afflictions, you would think could get you in trouble for heresy. But it's Paul, so we're going to let him go. What was lacking? How is it that Jesus is an example that we should follow in his steps? What he's saying is this. I redeemed you in a way you would never have anticipated by the way, proof of that is look for another religion that says this. Satan does a lot of mockery, a lot of twisting, a lot of trying to imitate. He doesn't imitate this. Nobody wants to believe this. This is not only not intuitive, it's offensive. And religions always do something other than this because it is too unbelievable. Jesus says, I came and endured pain and suffering while trusting the Father so that evil and suffering would be destroyed. That's an amazing thing. And it's true. And when you sign up to surrender to Jesus, you're signing up to endure evil and suffering and trust God instead of fighting. And so when Gusty dies... You stand with the parents. When someone is confused by SSA, you can't fix it. You stand with them. When someone who doesn't know Jesus is dying and hurting or mocked or broken or despised by the world, you stand with them and identify with them and you bring God into that place. You may not keep them from dying. You may die yourself for standing with them. But you bring Jesus into that place. 
and you make a mockery of raw evil by saying, when I stand and endure evil and suffering, my own, someone else's, or even what we call (laughs) the meaningless suffering, it no longer is meaningless because you've brought God there to say God is here and he sees it. And he will judge, but he only comes to judge when evil has been completely eviscerated. We look at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, both talk about the return of Christ. Paul says there that when Jesus comes back, it will be with a sword in his mouth, and by the word of his mouth, evil will be destroyed. The way he created is the way he will uncreate evil. Not with a sword in that sense, but with a word, which is a sword. Yes, there's a final battle at the end, and we can talk about how that integrates. Not saying it isn't there, but that is not what destroys evil. That's mopping up. So how does this fit together? God says, I am all good. I'm the fountain of good. God says, I have all power. And God says, I created you, and yes, evil is in the world because you created it. It's a secondary creation. But you did it, and he knew it. He created the world where it would be, but he says, I faced that, and here's how I face it. This is what holds these three statements together is adding a fourth. And that fourth statement is this, evil and suffering is destroyed only by enduring evil and suffering, not by coercive power. At least, if it's the case, that God wants to create a people who are actually freed from evil, not only forgiven, it's not enough to forgive you or me, not only forgiven, but completely transformed, and only that amazing battle on the cross could do that. I want to wrap up before we go to the Q&A with just asking a question that's on my mind. I don't remember if it's on my next slide or not. Let's see. Nope, that was the end. That's okay. Doesn't go backwards. You don't need it. I want to ask the question, but what kinds of suffering? What kinds of suffering actually can be used in this economy of God? I want to tell you every kind. Now, I've got a taxonomy. I mean, I've got a list of categories I'll share with you. I'm going to say every kind of suffering comes into the categories I'm going to suggest. Um, If you think of something that isn't in here, we'll make another category or fit it into mine. My claim, at least, right or wrong, you decide, does it fit God's word, is that, in fact, every kind of suffering is used in this way. So let's start with an easy one, suffering of persecution. We would say, well, of course. Um, Voluntary suffering, suffering of persecution. When we stand with Jesus, of course he uses that to destroy evil. And we think of somebody like Stephen, who unfairly persecuted the first martyr. His name itself means crown. And he says he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he pray to his Lord? He prays, forgive them. Just like the Savior, whose words he heard only many, many months before. How about this? Involuntary suffering. Do you think 
Do you think God would use involuntary suffering in his economy to destroy evil and suffering? Oh, yes, he does. Think of Joseph. Joseph, I don't know how much he understood when he was in prison from age 19 to age 30, in prison for something he did not do. He was a political prisoner, effectively. I can say this. He trusted God. We don't get a lot of the story beyond the fact that he was put in a position of trust because he wasn't ranting and raving in prison against everybody that didn't understand him. I'm innocent. Let me out. He became, well, he became the caretaker of the whole prison. And God gave him favor with the one who served Pharaoh, and he was let out. But at the end of his life, almost, or at the end of the biggest part of the story, he's given an opportunity to give his perspective and all that's happened in his life. Here's his perspective in Genesis, the last chapter. He says to his brothers, who are worried because their dad just died, that Joseph will put them in prison, or worse. You know what he says. You, brothers, who sold me into slavery, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, that's a man who stood with God in un- or involuntary suffering. He didn't choose it. It didn't make sense. But he suffered and trusted God, and battles were won. Satan was defeated, who wanted to cut off the seed. By the way, to look back at Genesis 3, you should interpret almost every story in the Bible as Satan trying to undo that promise. I will cut off the seed. The seed was Abraham. It was Isaac. It was Jacob. Let's wipe out Jacob's family. Couldn't do it. And if there was one reason he couldn't do it, it's this involuntary, involuntary sufferer Joseph trusted God and evil took a hit. Third kind is the suffering of obedience. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, yeah, give us a second chance if you like, but it's going to turn out the same. We obey God. Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 4, the example of obedience. By the way, 1 Peter, if we had time, is the epistle that is a dissertation on suffering and how to deal with it. Every chapter, he's coming back to this. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians the suffering of obedience. I will be an obedient pastor, though you do not respect me. You do not give me the honor that is due an apostle and one who's given his life for you, but I will serve you because I trust God. And I will serve you in love. Suffering of obedience defeats Satan. How about the suffering of correction? I mean, wow, you know, I just screwed up and God gave me a discipline. How can that be something that's used in God's economy to destroy evil? How about David? I mean, you want to get a worse sin than what he did with Bathsheba? Well, yeah, maybe when he kills one of his best friends because he was an embarrassment. And the birth was an embarrassment. So yeah, it does get worse. And then God says, I'm going to kill the child that's born of your sin. David does two things. He begs God to change his mind. Fast and prays. And then when God says no, he gets up and worships. Talk about turning around the suffering 
of correction, of discipline, and using it so evil is destroyed and people look at what David's doing and said, who is God? You can do that. One last category, and that's the suffering of the ungodly. I mentioned it briefly. Many of the stories of those who voluntarily suffered under the hand of the Nazis when they themselves could have easily escaped. But they stood with God's people, the Jews, and it cost them their house, their life, and not only their own, often their families. You and I can stand in the context of meaningless suffering, suffering we can't even turn around, but stand with a sufferer and say, God is here. And evil is destroyed. Satan is turned back. I'd love to look at the book of Lamentations. I'll just tell you briefly that Lamentations is a chiasm like the whole Bible chiasm that I showed you. It goes in, comes back out. And the t-shirt that some of you have, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, God is merciful every morning. This is in the middle of Jerusalem being destroyed. And Jeremiah intentionally put this right smack in the middle of his book, his short book. By the way, Lamentations is a hard book to find, isn't it? But it's attached at least to the longest prophetic book of the Bible, Jeremiah. And there it is in the middle. It's a whole story of the Bible. Wherever you see pain, you will see someone getting it and calling out to God, I trust you. And that is a final answer to the problem of evil. It doesn't make the pain go away. But you refuse the irrational side of evil. And you trust the one who is going to bring it to an end. Let me pray for us, and we'll do Q&A. Father, there's all kinds of ways to solve this problem. We can change the problem or we can make things up. Or we can stand with you and trust you are really destroying evil and suffering when we suffer evil and suffering and trust you. Oh, help us. For that is what we would do in the world we would live in and we would show people around us the only hope was a person and our God and the one who loves us and puts his name on us. Amen. Yeah, so if anyone wants to start us off with a question could be related to the message or and wrestling with. So I thought it was a little interesting that you didn't bring up Job, um, which is fine. I was just uh, wanting to ask about that. Could you expand on how God interacts with the devil? Like, he comes and he's like, hey, like, I've been roaming around the earth, and he's like, oh, like, look at Job. And then, you know, so yeah, if you could just expand on that. Yeah. That interacts. 
The first thing to see, I think, is something you just reminded us of. And that is Job does not get to listen in to Job 1 and 2, or at least most of it. Job is not off camera. He's not seeing behind the curtain. But behind the curtain, God, not Satan, is bringing up Job. So think of it this way. Job signed up for God's team. Things are going great. And the first thing he knows is he gets effectively a a right cross in the chin. Where did that come from? He didn't hear the discussion with God and Satan. And it's really important to see that it was God that said, have you seen my servant Job? No, I hadn't even thought about him, but now that you mention it, Satan says. And after the first round where Job had gotten placed right in the ring without being told that there was a fight tonight. Satan comes back to God, and there's round two. And it's God again. Job didn't, or Satan doesn't come back and say, God, let's think about how this has gone with Job. No. He gives the standard teenage answer. God says to Job, what have you been doing? He said, ah, nothing, just walking around. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? Round two. And Job gets hit again. I understand those first two chapters, or the first two parts, the parts of those two chapters that happen in heaven, as, think about it happening in eternity, as it were. Think about this as a creation and God's plan. And what happens in the middle from Job 3, where his friends show up, all the way to Elihu's first talk, which is in 36, I believe. That is kind of like our life. And if you raise your hand or fall on your knees and sign up for God's team, surrendering to him and betraying the team that you used to serve, you now wear God's colors. And God says, I now will send you into battle against Satan any time I see fit. And I wonder if we really understand Christian life that way. But I think that's the first lesson from Job. The next lesson is after all this talk. By the way, I want you to notice that Job's comments are always Godward. Now, there's something really important about that. He is confused. He is frustrated. He wants his day in court. He wants God to remember what he's done for the widows and the orphans, James chapter 1. But he addresses God. It's the right thing to do when you're disoriented. The next thing that happens in 36 is Eli who comes. He's a, a young guy. He's heard all the old guys talk. Idiots. I waited out of respect. Doesn't sound that much like respect to me because he says, and you're all idiots. Um, not sure if it counts to say I waited for respect and then to call them idiots, but maybe it doesn't feel like it to me. And then he rehearses their arguments. Some people say he actually gets it. I don't think so. I think what that interlude, 36 
maybe it's 32 to 36, that interlude where Elihu speaks is just to show that whenever someone comes along and says, yeah, I got the, pro- the answer to the problem of evil, I got it wrapped up and tied with a bow, that they're doing no worse and probably worse than all that came before them. Elihu didn't have the humility he should have. By the way, he got some things right and he got some things wrong, just like Job's friends did. In the right context, most, not all, but most of what they said was right. And in the right context, many of the things Elihu said were right. But when you take them as a package, they were off base. In fact, Elihu is so off base in my judgment, that's why at the end, which we'll get to in a second, at the end, God didn't even mention Elihu. He didn't say he did great, therefore no sacrifice. He just said, Job, sacrifice for your three friends. Elihu is dismissed. But what happens next after this interlude? So we've got God and Satan, kind of the the plan for the world. We've got the living out of our lives in time. We've got the interlude where we come along and say, I got this figured out. We're going to tie a bow on it and the problem of evil, no. But what we come to last, at least in terms of temporal time, is we come to the judgment where everyone will stand before God. Isn't it a little scary? Shouldn't you and I be given pause that we will face the judgment too? Yes, you'll have Jesus Christ. And some who don't will say dumb things like, well, I chased out a lot of demons and I did miracles in your name just proving that they didn't know Jesus. By God's mercy, you and I will say, I have nothing. I, I come to you for your mercy in Christ's blood. But you'll stand. You'll stand before that judgment seat. And it will be both terror and joy, like it was for Job. I put my hand over my mouth. And then, the end of time as I understand Job, point, painting us a picture of all eternity and putting the problem of evil in the middle. At the end of time, God gives everything back and more. Now, was there an actual Job? Yeah, I suspect there was. I do want you to notice, though, that the very setting of Job is antecedent even to Abraham. It is the oldest historical. By historical, I don't mean it happened or didn't happen. By historical, I mean when they were writing stories down. I don't know when it was actually written, but it's written about a man who lived before Abraham. Before that, Genesis 1 to 11, while true, it is historical in the sense of God had to give him the story because I'm telling you, Moses wasn't there when the world was made. Adam wasn't even there. So this is God telling him. Nobody was there to write it down. Someone's writing down the story of Job, and it's before the time of Abraham. So given that, we can look at Job as the oldest in history book And the problem God raises in this book is the problem of evil. That's how important it is to God and to us. And I believe taking this life of Job and writing theology by it, what God is showing us is a whole sweep of history. From his plan to create and redeem and allowing Satan to our suffering when we sign up to be gods and get hit when we didn't even realize there was going to be a fight today, And trusting God in the middle of it so that God can say at the end in all the words Job spoke, he did not sin against me. Isn't that amazing? To Job facing judgment and being restored. 
And so I believe Job paints for us the whole story of the problem of evil. It paints it right up front, even, if you will, historically, just prior to Abraham. It's that important. And God shows us his plan for the whole world and how the problem of evil fits into it. It fits into it because you will be in that fight. And it tells us you will suffer evil and suffering and trust God. He started that way. He ended that way. Little loose in the middle, but he hung in there by God's mercy. Did that answer your question or mine? Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, my question kind of speaks to the nature of the talk. I think I might And um, when I think about what you've said tonight and the topic that we're addressing, how evil and suffering can point people back towards God, not necessarily that by themselves. Um, like you talk about, it may not be actually part of the battle. It right, just is our job and God's glorified in it, which is true. That yeah. part's at least true. Sure. I'll tell you, one of the things I've been praying, and maybe not hard enough, I've never done this in 40 minutes. I've done this in 16 weeks, two hours a week. I've done it in a whole week, over six sessions, three hours a day. Um, And I've done it in, I think, three hours, once or twice. Um, I've never tried to do it in 40 minutes. So I was asking God for a bit of a miracle. Even while I was speaking, I realized that some of those things I was not taking the time to sit on long enough. So l- let, me, let me back up and see if I can answer. It's a really good question. I think you're correct in that based on the time we had and what I said, I didn't bring that piece all the way home. Let me start with Job. God is taking on Satan, but Job is his designated hitter. I want you to see that this is cast as a battle with Satan from the beginning. And although Satan doesn't show up at the end, um, this is God's vicarious champion, and battles are being won against Satan, is my claim, in the story version. Again, story version doesn't mean it happened or didn't happen. What I will say is it's written theologically, And all the details, just like the Gospels, everything that happened couldn't be there. John says that, or all the the world's books wouldn't hold them. So there's a selectivity to tell us something. And I believe it's laying out a story where God is taking on Satan and Job is his fighter, and the battle's won. Um, Again, it's not the battle for redemption, which is something that alone is accomplished by Christ. As far as Christ, if you look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Write it down or remember it or turn there quick or turn on your phone fast. Um, it says, and then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the one who's opposing Jesus in the world. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath out of his mouth. I think there's a really intentional parallel to creation here. 
And I think what it's saying is the fundamental battle is done by God's word. When we do see the battle at the end of time, I want you to notice it's not much of a battle. Um, God lets the people go on in chapter 17. It's 17, 18, 19 um, of Revelation. God lets us go on. We get different glimpses of it until finally when God ends this battle, and it may be that in here we actually see cycles of the same story being described from different angles. I'm inclined to think that's what's going on all the way through the book, but here as well. The final victory in this um, Armageddon is not something that, as you read the text, looks like this years-long, months-long, weeks-long, or days-long battle. The battle God allows to go on for some indefinite time against the people that are his, and they seem to be surrounded in Jerusalem, but then like that, God comes and ends it. So sure, there's a sword, but the sword is brought out when the battle is basically over and God's people are his and won, and they're won by the cross, and the battle, while he does bring out a sword, even as Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians, it's the sword out of his mouth. It's the breath of his mouth. And you see those kinds of images all the way through Scripture. Again, all of them going back, I believe, to Genesis 1. That the wrap-up is the same way. So this coercive power of God is, if you will, the cleanup centerpiece of scripture is when he doesn't come in that kind of coercive power it's the cross the other piece is just tidying up because in that cross something happened that made us not like adam romans 8 go look at it so that we adam's here can go either way well not either way we know it's going to happen and god doesn't wake up one morning and say Oh, myself, what happened? I mean, he planned the fall. He just didn't do it. He set all the conditions that would cause the fall because he wanted to save us from that fall. We had to fall first to be brought here to where we're freely conforming. But how does our, part, our bit, our work of suffering alongside him fit? He says, what I did, you do. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul says, what was lacking in the cross, I fill up in my body. And he says wonderful things like 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, somewhere around verse 8. And let me see if I can find it quick. I don't think it's underlined here, but he says, well, let me start back. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. I just got to stop here. How is he going to join Peter in suffering? By the power of God. How do you suffer by the power of God? I mean, that's a weird thing. I mean, by the power of God, we want you to take away the suffering. Like, God, it hurts. Take it away. Paul reverses that. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of anything we have done, but for his own purpose and grace. And then a statement like Revelation 13, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, 
who abolished death and brought life and liberty, immortality, to light through the gospel. Or abolished. It's the word luo. It means to destroy. He destroyed death by suffering. And you suffer. You fill up in your body that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Here's the problem. We as Christians like to look at the cross as the exception. My claim is the cross tells us reality. Here's reality. Bigger hammer doesn't work to accomplish what God wants. Now, now, God could destroy evil. I mean, that's not a problem for God. He could destroy Satan. He could destroy evil. He could take out Noah and the whole world, redo it all again without us, and there'd be no evil. Rocks and squirrels aren't going to make evil because they're not in God's image. They're not good without having the source of goodness, the fountain. I'm not saying God can't destroy evil. I'm saying God can't destroy evil and get what he wants, which is you. And to get you, he has to do it a different way, and coercive power won't do it. And you and I tend to look at the cross and say, wow, that's amazing. It is. But we should also say, oh, that's how the world really is. It takes evil and suffering being endured while trusting in God to destroy evil and suffering. And when Paul says, join me in that kind of power, he's saying, join me in the mopping up operation. Join me like Job was joined up with God. Join me while we wait for Christ to come back and say, now my work is completed and you join me. And yes, then he brings out the sword, but even then it's talked about as a breath out of his mouth. So it is evil and suffering, the Bible claims, is actually the destructive power to get what he wants, which is you. He could always crush you. It's amazing. He doesn't want to. Still not a full answer. Best I can do tonight. In the time we have anyway. Other questions? I'll meet you halfway. Um, can you talk about generational curse and maybe examples of... And about happened? the what curse? Generational curse. Oh, the generational curse. I, I don't think I have much to offer in that that wouldn't... I, I didn't... Think about that in regard to this. Um, there, God contrasts the generational curse with the generational blessing when he says three generations will deal with sin, but my blessing is for a thousand. You know, so he's saying I'm, I am reversing it in some way um, when we look at what he says in the Torah. But I, I don't have much more to say than what Moses said in that, and that's fading too. So... Wish I did. I don't. Questions better than the teacher. Thank you, Dr. Shank. Uh, I had a question. Maybe more practical, um, but when Jesus in Romans eight is talking about those who suffer to become an heir with me, you must suffer in right. order you may Eight, be glorified. Yeah, 817 is the hinge in that <clears throat> chapter. That's right. 
is there a level of a sense of us comfortable American Christians should seek some kind of suffering as Christ and maybe a heart check for those who or us that don't feel like we're suffering and should we seek that? A Romanian pastor was at Bethlehem speaking and he was speaking about suffering. Ah, it's got to be 20, 25 years ago. Uh, I think it was one of the early Pascons, if I recall correctly, but as he came and spoke, that question came up because in Romania, the suffering was overt and clear, and he says, why are you talking to us? I mean, we're pretty comfortable. And his answer was this. We suffer at the hands of the government. You're suffering in your families. Fifty percent of Christians, Christian marriages seem, if I, you know, the people play with numbers, end up in divorce. I'd be shocked if some of you who are here tonight who are single are hesitant to get married because of what you've seen, either in your family or families that are close to you and the terror of those kinds of realities. How many people, old and young, I've had in my office saying, I refuse to get married uh, because that piece of paper isn't going to save us. And they go and live together. I'm saying, yeah, I don't quite see the difference, but that was a longer conversation. We're suffering in our families. How, how many are willing to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and take it seriously when it talks about if your spouse leaves you, stay single and pray? I mean, who would do that in America? Your spouse leaves you? Well, you could bless them. You could be peaceful. You could give them what they deserve. You could make the divorce easy. But then you're going to go and get remarried. But 1 Corinthians 7, if I'm reading it right, is telling us the opposite thing, but we can't hear that. Can we suffer in our families and trust God? We don't have to look for suffering is what I'm saying, and suffering goes beyond that. I'm picking one thing and I'm remembering one answer from a man wiser than I who had to feel that acutely since they were suffering bodily and in prison and he knew he was talking to people that aren't, but I think it's a pretty good first answer. How many of us, 80%, if the numbers I hear are right, are suffering at work? How many of us recreationally complain about our boss and our job? How many of us are willing to suffer at work and endure it because we are confident in God? And to trust God. How many of us are willing to suffer in our church? I mean, who here goes to a perfect church? You know what I mean. But, boy, how transient we are between our churches. Why? We're not willing to suffer in them. If someone offends us, and does it again, we're about done. And if three people offend us, well, this is just an unfriendly church and I've got to go. I'm speaking as a pastor. And we used to turn people away. They'd come to our church. I don't mean in droves, but they would come to our church to get away from another church. And I would say, you're welcome to come and sit for three weeks. Be with us. Heal. But after three weeks, tell me you've contacted your former church. And after three months, tell me you've met with them and tried to heal and go back. Come and heal, but go back. You know what they do. 
they'd go down the street where someone wouldn't harass them about it so they could just join up here and complain about their church. Some state. Will you suffer in your church? Because 1 John chapter 4 says if you don't love people who you can see, by the way, it says brothers, sisters, Christians, people in your church, you don't love the God that you can't see. Wonder if we're willing to suffer in our church. Wonder if we're willing to suffer God's discipline and praise him like David, even if we ask for relief, but when he doesn't give it. And when we ask for relief, do it in a way that honors him. I wonder. The list goes on, but yeah, we are suffering. How do we do it? And do we cast it in, in this story? And all of First Peter says, when you suffer, count as joy. When you suffer, realize it is a sweet fellowship with Jesus. You're doing his work with him, which is destroying evil and suffering. You're in the cleanup operation. Follow-up on suffering? I can't see. On a, on a definition for our suffering, is that good enough or did I cheat? Okay. Probably got time for one or two more questions. Um, maybe a more practical note. When you, when you talk about standing, standing with people in their suffering, I think this makes sense to me um, as Christians standing with other Christians in their suffering as an encouragement. But you mentioned that when there are unbelievers who are suffering and evil, and so often they're the ones who say, ah, oh, where's God and everything's awful and how can God be good and powerful and these things that they've heard. And you say, you stand with them. Could you maybe elaborate more on what does that look like to stand with an unbeliever who doesn't, who doesn't believe these things about God? Um, how, to, how to stand with them from your stance of, knowing why evil and suffering is, I mean, you know that you're part of evil and suffering, but what is their part of evil and suffering, or how do you stand with them in that? Several friends of mine who were pastors divorced their church, their God, and their wife in the same day. There's a pattern among too many pastors The typical thing is for church people to move away, usually quoting the verse, you know, don't eat with your brother or sister who's in sin. Paul didn't mean nothing by that. I could explain what he meant positively, maybe another time, because it, it has significant meaning and real meaning, but in those cases, I would meet with those who God had put in my circle, if they would meet with me, and we'd eat. We'd have coffee once a month. Remember, one of them turned to me and asked me that question. What are you doing here? I don't believe in God anymore. I cheated on my wife. I divorced my wife, and I hate the church. I want nothing to do with it. Why are you even here? My answer was, You know 
how reprehensible I think what you did was. What you don't know is that God loves you, died for you, and is right here. And I am here. So when you're ready to believe that, you might believe that by seeing him in me. Countless Christians, I said this in the talk, but countless Christians died standing with unbelievers, Jews. May it be that they became believers in mass, many of them, but as far as they could tell, but they died standing with them. What did that do? It says God is here. In this suffering, God is here, and Satan loses because Satan says, I want to show the world that God is to be mocked and when we stand with someone who's hurting, Satan loses. And when we are willing to suffer meaningless suffering with someone, can't even change it. Mine was minor, right? So the only suffering I had was the people who wondered what I was doing with this guy and wanted to accuse me of disobeying Paul. Well, we can talk at my trial about why I think that was consistent with Paul, but it didn't cost me much. But it often does. And that's what we're called to, because Satan only wins if God is mocked. All it takes is you standing with them, and he can't be. It doesn't work. It changes the equation. It changes the geometry. 